Well, good morning again. Uh, we are so thankful you're here, so thankful we got to spend some time in prayer for Katie, prayer to our great God, and also spend time worshiping the Lord through song. Thank you so much for our music team that prepares every week to help us lift our voices and our hearts to the Lord. Well, if you are visiting, uh, my name is Brian McKenzie. I have the privilege to serve as one of the elders here, or pastors, depending on, mean the same thing, but one of the elders here at the Potter's House, and uh, it's a privilege to be able, to, a couple times a month, be able to bring God's Word to us, and uh, uh, this morning we're continuing the series we just started uh, a couple, a few weeks ago. It's, it's entitled Potter's House. That's Okay. What's that, Brian, you're saying one moment? One momento. Okay. Por favor, please. That's my Spanish. Well, just as they prepare that, um, let me just say this. As I, Jay and I were talking out there just a few minutes ago beforehand, and he asked me if I was ready, and then, of course, I was sarcastic, said, you mean I'm teaching today? Um, but, yes, I'm, I knew that, and... Um, doing these um, messages like we're doing, usually just work through books of the Bible, verse by word by word, verse by verse. Actually, this is harder to prepare for and also harder just to pare things down because there's so much, right? So just to let you know, I've wrestled with this this week. I mean, I was wrestling. I was out of town. I was wrestling with it. I was back in town. I was wrestling with it, just wrestling with how much do you share, but so much of it's important for us to get the context right and for us to drop in on where we're going to be looking at today in a way that we can understand. So I'm just going to get started. When this comes up, we'll be ready to go, um, but as I, 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 I don't need that, but I'm thankful for it, okay? It's kind of like I don't need this. I said this before one time when I was pastoring. I didn't need the microphone, and the guy in the back turned me off. Um, so I, I don't need them, but I'm thankful for them. That's why I always bring my Bible. Last two Fridays ago, I was speaking to a group of coaches at an event, and uh, my, my iPad went red. It just went red. Nothing. All right? So I'm always prepared. Um, this is like a 1914 iPad. I do understand that. But um, I, I'm, I always bring my Bible, you know, just in case that happens again. I think we're good with this, but I don't need it, but thankful for it. But, hey, the, the title of our four-week series is entitled, Watch the Lamb. And the subtitle is, The Lamb Who Was Slain from the Creation of the World. And, and this morning, there we go, perfect timing, look at that, is part three, a lamb, uh, a lamb, should say a lamb for a, a, a nation. And this, we're going to be looking at some key truths in Leviticus 16 as we look at this. And in order for us to, to, to see the big picture again. I just want to remind us where we've been, where we're going. We, we first talked about a lamb for a couple back in Genesis 3, and then last week, a lamb for the family. Jay was in a, with a Passover in Exodus. Uh, today is a lamb for a nation, and next week on Christmas Eve, both in the morning and in the evening, because there's so much there, we'll have a lamb for the world. And, and in this series, we're highlighting a theme that runs throughout Scripture um, having to do with this lamb, as you can see that. Uh, a lamb who serves as a substitutionary sacrifice for those who are guilty of sin. So just by, just, I always like to see the three people who raise their hand here, same th- three people. Just by way of hand, who in here would be guilty of sin? Okay. Oh, wow, look at There's more than three. And, um, and, and, and those of you who didn't raise your hand, we understand, okay? Um, all right, but, and this theme highlights 
the main storyline. Uh, some people call it the meta-narrative. It's the big story, uh, the theme of God's word, which is God's plan to rescue or redeem or save, those all are synonymous in some ways, a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the penalty, the power, and ultimately the presence of sin. And this, this theme here, this lamb, the substitutionary lamb for our sin, highlights the big theme of Scripture. And I just want you to notice the progression here. First, there was a lamb for a couple. It was just two. And then we saw a lamb for the family. Now, it was multiple families, but it was really, each family was responsible. But a lamb for the family. And then today we're going to see a lamb for the nation. Look at the scope of what the substitutionary sacrifice does. And then we're going to see a lamb for the world. Isn't that beautiful? How it just weaves throughout Scripture. Uh, and we're also highlighting the importance of the subtitle of this series, which is a lamb who was slain from the creation of the world from Revelation 13.8. In this statement right here, it's so important, that God, the ultimate author of the story of redemption, is saying that his plan to rescue or save sinners through a sacrifice um, of a lamb was in place before there were sinners to rescue. It was already there, not afterward. It was before the foundation of the world. The plan to rescue sinners through the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world was not plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. He's not a reactionary God. Well, oh my goodness, there Adam and Eve sinned. What am I going to do now? Oh, man, the people are in sin. What am I going to do now? I'm going to have to come up with more ideas. That's not God. I'm so thankful it's not. He's not reactionary. What kind of God would that be? Not one worthy of worship. Not one worthy for us all to gather here this morning to worship, for sure. He doesn't have a plan B. He has a plan A, and this is his plan. The lamb that was slain before the foundation, the creation of the world. Well, with that reminder of the main theme of this series, let's, let's now look at a little review from the last couple of weeks. Um, the, 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 the first week, as I said, we mentioned um, the lamb for the couple in Genesis 3. And, and there we saw in Genesis 3.21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, his, Adam and his wife, and clothed them. So here we saw the lamb for the cu- couple. In order for the garments to be garments of skin to cover them, where would he get the garments of skin? What had to happen? Well, Animals had to die, and specifically lambs had to die for them to be clothed. And with this act of the Lord clothing Adam and Eve with skins, he, he, they would forever understand that something innocent had to die for their sin in order for them to be covered, for them to be made right with God. They would forever understand that. And remember Adam and Eve, they, they had tried to cover their own Sin and shame, right, with fig leaves sewn together. And then later, the Lord comes with the animal skin, showing that their effort to make themselves right with God, to, to hide their sin and shame, to cover their sin, was, in, was insufficient. Only God's work and God's sacrifice would be sufficient to cover their sin. And this is obviously a picture of substitutionary atonement uh, um, that we learn all throughout the Scripture. Well, last week, Jay took us to Exodus 11 and 12, where we, through the Passover, we saw a lamb for the family. As part of the Lord's sovereign plan to rescue sinners, he rescued the nation of Israel from the hands of Pharaoh and Egyptians. After nine plagues uh, and Pharaoh's obstinate, hard refusal 
to let God's people go, the Lord promised a tenth plague. And Jay reminded us last week that the Lord was very clear as to the plague and the judgment that it would entail. The Lord didn't make it like mysterious. It wasn't like Peter says about some of Paul's writings. Well, it's sometimes things that Paul were hard to understand. This was not hard to understand. Pharaoh understood. God was very clear through Moses. The people understood. The Lord would send a death angel, the destroyer, some people say, throughout Egypt and strike down all the firstborn sons of every single family. But the Lord also instructed the people to have the head of their household take a one-year-old lamb and slaughter it, a one-year-old lamb without defect, a pure lamb, and slaughter it, and then take the blood of that lamb and put it over their door and on the sides of the door. The Lord said when he saw the blood, the death angel would pass over that house. Thus we call it the Passover. Any home without the blood of the lamb would have the firstborn son struck down that night. And Jay pointed out that the, that the Lord made a distinction. Remember this? He made a distinction between the Egyptians, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the Israelites. But it wasn't a distinction defined by bigotry or prejudice or nationality or ethnicity. It was a distinction defined by belief. Would they believe and act upon their belief of what God promised would happen? The famous Israel were rescued from death because they believed. And the proof of their belief in what God promised is they put the blood over their door and on the sides of their door. And this pointed to a continued pattern in God's word that Jay brought up. God commands, he gives a command. We see this with Adam and Eve too. People sin by disobeying God's command. God warns about the judgment to come. People believe God's warning. God makes a provision, and then people accept their provision by faith. This is over and over and over again in God's word. Jay then pointed out a key truth when it comes to God's grace. Just, just, just want to touch on this, and then, then we'll move on. This is so important. God's grace has not come to us in the form of God's ambivalence. God's grace comes to us in the form of God's provision. Jay pointed out that God had, exchanged, had extended grace over and over to Pharaoh, giving multiple chances and Pharaoh refused. God loved Pharaoh, but God would not allow Pharaoh's rebellious heart against him to go unchecked. Yet, yes, God does hate sin, and he does love people who sin, but he's not ambivalent. God's love for sinners does not mean God take, takes a carefree attitude towards sin. He can't, because he's also just. God didn't say to Pharaoh, oh, no big deal. I'll just let that slide. No, no big deal, Pharaoh. He didn't say that. And Jay then pointed out, this, this is so important, I, because I have conversations with people all the time, and, 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 and it's okay that the first attribute of God they want to bring up is love. And that's so true. But that's not all there is to God. And sometimes that's all that we hear. And, and you know what? We're short-sighting God. He's way more than love. Way more than love. He is, he, he's also righteous and just and holy. And because of his justice, there's wrath that's involved. And when we say the word wrath, some people go, ooh, I don't like that. The reason we don't like it very much, it's real, is because when we give wrath, it's never just. All right? We don't, but that's not with God. God's just is always wrath. It's, it, God's wrath is always just. It's, it's always deserved. 
And God passed over the people when he saw the blood on the sides of their door, all right? Because here, listen, at the same time, his love was working, so was his justice. At the same time, his grace was working, so was his holiness and righteousness, his wrath. They all worked together in perfect harmony. Now, that's hard for us to understand because usually those things don't work in perfect harmony in our life, do they? But God can do that. He, he's God. And, and the people applied the blood because they believe in God's provision through the blood of the Lamb. God made a provision. His grace and his justice met perfectly together. Our message to people is they should re- rely on God's provision. God's provision. Not that, oh, you know, no big deal. Sin. He won't do that. Rely on his provision that takes care of of sin and pays for our sin. And this all points to the ultimate truth of Jesus as our provision for the penalty of our sin. Isn't that good news? It's all over the place. That we understand that God is holy. God is just. Yes, he's loving. He's gracious. And God calls us to holiness, to follow after him. And yet we, we fail at that. It's called sin. We, we miss the glory of God. We make much of us instead of much, make much of God. And the wages of sin is death deserves justice. It deserves punishment. That's where we stand because of our sin before God. Yes, he loves us, but he must punish our sin. That's a dilemma for us, but not for God. Why? Because he gave the ultimate provision for our sin in Jesus, didn't he? To die for our sin, to die because he loved us, and because he also needed someone to pay the just penalty for sin. See there? Love and justice, grace and wrath, all together, all together. We worship that kind of God, and we are to respond by accepting, believing, trusting in his provision. We must respond. I I, I thought about this last week as Jay was teaching, and I've shared this illustration before. I'm going to share it again because I know you all forget from week to week. Um, And I'm not being mean. I'm just, sometimes we do. And this helps me. I just had this picture in my mind. I shared this before. Uh, And and Jay made this statement. The the bad news makes the good news, makes the good news good, doesn't it? The bad news that we're, that God is just and we are sinful and we deserve God's wrath on on our life. We deserve his just penalty for our sin, which is death, eternal separation from God forever. Not just physical death, but eternal separation. All right? That's true. All right? That's that's, That's the bad news. That must be there for the good news to make, be really good, that God does love us and he sent his son to die for us. If we would trust him, we would be forgiven. That's good news. But it makes no sense without this. What do we need? I heard this before. I was, heard, this is years ago, and my wife probably knows what I'm talking about. I heard, went to this guy, and there's like 300 kids, like ages 6 through 12 in this, in this auditorium. And they brought the speaker in. You need to get saved. You need to get saved. You need to get saved. And he just kept going, you need to get saved. And my son, who was probably about eight at the time, leaned over and he said, Dad, saved from what? Saved from what? Yeah, saved from the just wrath of God on our sin, from the penalty of our sin. He, the guy never came up. He was, all right, you need to come up so you can get saved. All, I know the kids are like, what in the world? Saved from what? My son just voiced it, right? We gotta, they got to go together. It makes no sense at all. So I shared this illustration when I was looking for John L. a diamond, all right, back in the day, it was down in Dallas. And I went into this place, and they, they, they did this. They held up this diamond. Can you, can you forward that manually? No, okay. We're all locked up, but that's okay. So they held up, get this picture up there. They held up this diamond like this, and I said, oh, okay. 
I was not convinced I should buy that diamond. I mean, it just looked like a piece of glass. I mean, it was just holding up like that, and it's a big deal. And I was going to pay a lot of money for this, all right? And, and they, they held it up. It didn't look like it was worth I could go outside and break some glass and get something to look like that. That's what I thought. And then the jeweler, being brilliant, brought out this black piece of velvet and laid it. Boom. There you go, all right? There it is. is that, I mean, that's not that impressive, really. That's about four times as big as diamond as I got her, but no, no, I'm kidding. But I'm kidding. All right, so there it is. So the, then the next thing is that he brought out this, see if I'm in, brought out this. It was black. He drops this diamond on the, this black backdrop, and it's like, whoa, I need to buy this. This is incredible. Well, in the same way, until God's love, all right, and his grace is dropped on the background of sin, we don't see our need for a Savior. Why would we need that at all? Why would we need to repent and trust in Jesus, right? And, and that's this picture that's being painted, a picture that was painted, painted in the Passover. For the, in order for the good news to be really good, you've got to know the bad news, right? And that highlights the love and grace of God, but they go hand in hand. Well, with that review, we're going to move on this morning uh, uh, to a portion of Scripture we're going to look at today. Where we're actually going to read something we won't look at specifically, but it overviews what we're going to look at. If you'd stand with me, we're going to read from Ex- uh, Leviticus 16, verses 30 through 34 together. Here we go. For it is in this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of the meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Lord, we trust that you would take your word and open our minds and our hearts to learn what we need to learn and then put into practice what we need to put into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in order to get the full context of the Passover, I'm going to need to do an overview, okay, what happened between the Passover up until the instruction for this special day we just read about in Leviticus 16. And once again, I don't want to assume that everyone here knows what happens next. I'm thinking we don't do that. I'm thankful Jay doesn't do that. Always gives us context, helps us see. We don't want to assume that we all know. And, and, and so I'm not assuming everyone here knows that. So we, we need to give context. And I'm also and I'm going to encourage you again, like we did, la- I did two weeks ago, Jay did last week, that if you know the story, I'm about ready to overview, that don't just go, okay, here we go again. We're going to go through this. I've heard this one before. Hey, lean in. Let's all lean in and listen. I hope you just say, well, I've talked to people before, well, I've read the Bible. (laughs) Like you're reading it once, you get it, right? Hey, all of us, no matter how long you've read, many times you've read the Bible. My my grandmother used to read it twice a year. For a year, at least 40 years she did that. And she never felt like she got it all. All right, so we we can all learn more. So let's all jump in here and be humble and be amazed at what God does. So listen closely as I overview this large section of Scripture from Exodus 12, 33 to 40, which is the end of 
chapter 4, the end of Exodus. So after the Passover and, and the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, uh, the Egyptians began to beg the Israelites to leave, just like the Lord had promised that they would. The Israelites left Egypt, and the Lord led them to the Red Sea. I know you're all seeing Charleston Heston in your mind right now, and Moses, some of you will, or you're seeing the, the prince of, uh, of Egypt or something. Okay? It wasn't long before Pharaoh went after them with his army. He was fed up with these Israelites. The Israelites were caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. The Lord then stepped in and he parted the Red Sea and all the Israelites walked on dry ground with the waters like a wall on both sides. Pharaoh's army pursued them and when the last Israelite had gotten to the other side, the Lord caused the waters to come crashing down on Pharaoh's army so that not one remained. The Israelites were now heading to the promised land, following the Lord. He provided a cloud, of day, a cloud by day to follow and a pillar of fire by night to follow him. And as the Lord's people are following him through the wilderness towards the promised land, all kinds of amazing things happen. I encourage you to go read this section on your own. The Lord miraculously provides water in a desert for them. He provides food miraculously every morning, even provides meat sometimes. And the Lord gives his people the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. And while the Lord was giving Moses the law, listen, which would display God's perfect character, the law that would graciously protect the people, teach them how to relate with him and with each other, teach them how to approach him in worship, and ultimately show them their sin and need for a savior. While he is doing this, the people rebelled, highlighting once again their need. The Lord justly punishes their sin and provides a way of escape from the just penalty of their sin. And this is a theme represented, repeated over and over over the next 40 years. One of the amazing things that the Lord gives instruction on is the building of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting and all the articles it contained and the, and the things that surrounded it. It was in the tabernacle or through the appointed and sanctified priest where the Lord would meet with his people. The people built the tabernacle just like the Lord instructed and the glory of the Lord covered and filled the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus, Moses and Aaron are not permitted to enter into the tabernacle. Then we come to Leviticus. Everybody's favorite devotional book, I understand. If you, if you haven't read it, you will understand if you read it. And here, here's the problem. Here's what happens. Leviticus solves a problem that has been mounting since Adam and Eve sinned back in the garden. Since that time, no one has been able to stand in the presence of God. Then the book of Leviticus, the Lord gives the means by which they will be able to enter into the tabernacle and enter into his presence. The sacrificial system was especially critical as it provided a way for the people to enjoy fellowship with the Lord by cleansing them daily, they had weekly, monthly, they had sacrifices over and over again. And when it came to the sacrificial system, everything centered around the tabernacle or called the tent of the meeting. Now, some of you are going, well, there's a tent of the meeting before that. Yes, there was a tent of the meeting that Moses uh, met with God before the, the, the permanent one was built. Okay, but they also call the tabernacle the tent of the meeting to explain what its purpose was. It's there you meet the Lord. So I want you just to look with me. Again, I, I'm not taking for granted anybody knows. I want to look, this is a picture of, of the tabernacle, the, 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 outer, the, the outside of the tabernacle. Okay? And you see there, there's, a, there's, a, there's an altar. That's the first thing when you come into the, the, the gate. There's, a, there's an altar where sacrifices were made. And then you have a, a laver or a basin of washing where they would wash their hands. 
and, and cleanse themselves before they would go into the tabernacle or the tent of the meeting. All right? This is this. There's, there's, let me say this. We could spend right here on this picture about six hours explaining all that's there. It's amazing. So I'm going to do that. So don't be one of those people, hey, Brian, you missed this. I know I missed it. Okay. I, there's a bunch here, but we're just going to hit the highlights here. Then you can go inside the tabernacle. All right. And you have the two different places. You have the first section, which is the, the holy place. Okay. In the holy place, you have the golden lampstand, which you can see there, the table of showbread, and an altar of incense, all in the holy place. And then beyond the veil, there's the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And there you have the ark. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Ark, Lost Ark, this is what they're looking for. And on the ark, you have the mercy seat, where you have these two cherubims right, facing each other. Just a, it's a, it was beautiful. It was ornate. I mean, it, you, like, that pretty looks ornate. It was ornate. They put a lot into this. But it, it, it represented, this is, again, the place where they could meet with God. Right? Now, only one day out of the entire year, one day, one guy, the high priest, could go in the Holy of Holies. One day. Once they set it up, only one, day, one guy, one day a year, the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. No one else. No one else could do that, or they would die. And if that high priest tried to go in there when he wasn't supposed to, or by the means by which God had given him to go in there, he would die. This is the presence of the Lord. So I know this is a lot of information. Right, that's, that's a lot of information I just gave you, but it's critical to understanding our focus for this morning, a lamb for a nation. So we've come to the point here that we're, we're going to slow down a little bit and look at some specific truths in, in Leviticus 16. Right? And, and as, I, as I share all that, the majority of what we looked at today is going to be context. I don't think that Leviticus 16 and the main point of it is hard to understand. It's, again, not one of those scratch your head. Now, there's a lot of details we're not going to touch on, which are amazing, but it's just not that hard to understand. So we're, we're going um, we're to we're talk about some truth in these passages, and, and we're going to talk about this. Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur. And maybe you've seen it on your Hallmark calendar, right? Or on your phone, it may be there too. It says Yom Kippur. What in the world is Yom Kippur, or Kippur, or Kippur? All right, just how we emphasize it, right? What is that? Now, it's a Jewish holiday. If you ever looked up, it's a Jewish holiday. And the words Yom Kippur, Yom is the word for day. Kippur is an atonement. It's the day of atonement. Right? Now, the Jewish people still celebrate this, but not like they used to, which is interesting. I'm not, I've read a lot about how they celebrate it now. I'm thinking, man, it's, I'm not being sarcastic or anything, but it's kind of a waste of a time, and it's kind of anti-climatic when you see how they cel- we were supposed to celebrate it. I mean, it doesn't make much sense, but this, this is the Day of Atonement, all right? And it's here in Leviticus 16, this entering. It's the center of the Torah, the five books of the Bible. When you, when you look at this, chapter 16, now we, the numbers weren't there, but this, this telling of what happens during this time is at the center of the Torah, the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, highlighting its importance, right? And, and everything around us, it's, it's amazing that, that God instructed Moses to record it in this way um, and uh, so that they could see how important it was to enter in the presence of the Lord and come the way that he called them to come. 
So let's briefly look at what the Lord called him to do on the day of atonement. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a little overview to a certain part of chapter 16. Then I'm going to bring some of chapter 16 up here, and we'll look at that more intently. But this let me give you um, a little overview. Again, not everything, just an overview. The day of atonement was, again, the only day of the year the high priest could enter the Holy Holies. The Lord first instructed Moses to tell Aaron, the high priest, that before he makes atonement for the nation... All right, all these people, he must first be cleansed himself through, through bathing. He had this whole bathing ritual through, through certain clothes, and he only wore these when he was going to go into the tabernacle during this part of the Day of Atonement. In fact, there's a bunch of sacrifices I didn't want to go into before this, the normal daily sacrifices. There's a holiday sacrifice you can read about in Numbers as well. And there's a bunch of sacrifices going on before this part of the day. And then he'd take off those clothes, he would cleanse himself, put on this white, pretty simple linen garment, right? Just simple. He's not going there any, there's no pomp and circumstance with this. He's going there before a holy God. He just puts on this white, these white garments, all right? And he needed to sacrifice a bull and a ram were part of his sacrifices. And this symbolized, listen, that even the high priest was unclean, just like all the rest of the people. He wasn't special. He needed cleansing for his sin, so the high priest must then take two male goats from the people for a sin offering and one ram for a burn offering. Right, this is what he does. After this happens, he takes the, the goats and, and, this, and this ram. Now, now sometimes, I'm going to just clarify something really quick. Sometimes the word used for goat and lamb are interchangeable, and sometimes they're not. All right? There's a word that can be used for both. There's a word that can be used like this is just a goat and this is just a lamb. I did a lot of study on this week. All right? But sometimes it's like the word love in the New Testament we, got these, we talk about the three times of love. Sometimes, yes, they're different. You've got God's love, unconditional agape love. You've got phileo bro- love, brotherly love, Philadelphia. And you've got eros love, which is kind of romantic sexual love. Okay? But you know what? If you read the New Testament carefully, sometimes those words are used interchangeably. When you look at the context, it doesn't have the connotation just of brotherly love. It actually, in the context, is really talking about God's love. But sometimes those words were used interchangeably. So, yes, it says goat. Right? But it was a young, unblemished goat, a year old. Sound like a lamb? And sometimes those words were used interchangeably. So I want us to get over that. Well, they're talking about goats, not lambs. Well, yes, we're talking about goats and lambs, and they were used. And actually, you could actually sacrifice a goat or a lamb on your daily sacrifice for sin. All right? So don't get all caught up on that. I wanted to address that very quickly. So the high priest says, take these two goats and cast lots. One goat with the lot would fall on would be slaughtered. All right, as a sin offering for the sin of the people, and the other goat would be called the scapegoat. Right? And here's where I want us to pick up in Leviticus 16. After Aaron, the high priest, has been cleansed through the washing and sacrificed for himself, he will now go before the Lord on behalf of the people. Now, I'm going to read all this, and then I'm going to point out some things. All right? So just read along with me. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle on the mercy seat and the front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the impurities of the son of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities." When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of of, of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. 
With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the, of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay on them on the head of the goat and send it away in the wilderness by a hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. All right, so we, we, there's a lot there. And again, we're not going to hit, hit it all. All right, so we see that the first goat was offered to cleanse the holy place, and most importantly, as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people of the nation of Israel. Right? They had sinned. God is just. There must be penalty for their sin. God provided a lamb to die in their place, to come before his very presence and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, God's mercy seat, as an atoning sacrifice to turn away. This, there's a big word sometimes not in English translations anymore called propitiation, to turn away the wrath of God. And that's what it did. It turned away God's just wrath from his people. All right, the people were guilty, and they needed forgiveness. They needed death to take place, but it wasn't theirs. It was this first goat or lamb. It was a substitute to die in their place. Then we see the second goat who, who had all the sins of the nation transferred to him and lay, led away into the wilderness never to return again, most likely to die in the wilderness. Right? So somebody was assigned, we can read about this later in Luke 16, to take this goat out into the wilderness. And it's interesting, when that person came back, they had a whole ritual of cleansing that they had to go through because they were with the goat that had all the sins. And it was taken away and carried their iniquities away into this land, into the wilderness. And this at least symbolized the removal of the guilt and shame that came with sin. Not only were they right with God because he had declared them not guilty through the sacrifice of the lamb, but he also removed their guilt and shame. Isn't that good? It's good news. It's what he does. The day of atonement as lamb for a nation keeps the thread we have already seen a lamb for a couple and a lamb for a family. A lamb who serves as a substitutionary sacrifice for those who are guilty of sin. And we all agreed that would be us, right? All of us. And this, once again, highlights the main storyline of the theme of the Bible, right? God's eternal, sovereign plan to rescue a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, ultimately the very presence of sin. All of these sacrificial lambs ultimately point to the Lamb. As we talk about in Ruth, the Redeemer, Jesus. All of them do. And when it comes to the Day of Atonement and Lamb for the nation, Jesus is pointing to in every single aspect of this day. Again, if we had time, we could spend a whole series on that. He is, listen, he is the high priest. He's the high priest. He, listen, he needs no cleansing like the high priest in the Old Testament. He's also both of the goats who willingly, listen, not like the goats. They may not know what's going on, but I guarantee you they didn't volunteer for this. But Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. Jesus is, all the things that point to Jesus, they're amazing, but he's always greater. He always takes them bigger and more grand than we can even see 
in the pictures given to us over and over again about the lamb who was slain in the Old Testament. With that said, it's important to understand that the Day of Atonement, the high priest moving through the tabernacle, listen very closely, closely, is not the model that Jesus in his priesthood followed a copy. Let me say it again. This whole thing about the Day of Atonement is not the model that Jesus copied or followed. It's the other way around. What happened on the Day of Atonement in Israel was the copy of what Jesus did according to Hebrews 8.5 and in Hebrews 10. In fact, Hebrews, especially chapter 9, shows that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Day of Atonement, that's where the Day of Atonement finds its fulfillment. Because this had happened in eternity, what Jesus had done. Remember the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Look with me just briefly here, a couple passages in Hebrews 9, 11, 12. But when, the Christ, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, he's talking about a heavenly tabernacle, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to forgive sin. Those blood, the, 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 the goats and bulls and the, and the lambs and all the sacrifice never removed sin. None of them. They pointed to the one who would remove sin. They're a picture, not the reality. We see here Jesus was both the high priest and the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, further on in Hebrews 9, listen to this. Therefore, it was necessary of the copies of things, copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus entered into the true and heavenly throne room into the true holy of holies on our behalf one time, one time with his own blood to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow. And now notice what it says in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest, earthly priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool to his feet, for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus died for sin once for all. All time. He's sitting down at the right hand, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father that says here indicates his payment for sin is done. It's not year after year, it's not week after week. It was one time in 30 AD on a cross, what we get to see it, but in reality, it is before the creation of the world. That's when it all took place. One time. A lot there, huh? And I'm hoping the implications, and you just saw, time, as I said, this is hard to prepare for and kind of nail it all, bring it all down, but I want to make sure we don't miss 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Lamb for the nation. He is what it pointed to, that they all look forward to, and that we look back on. Well, a couple implications here. First one is enter into a right relationship with God through Jesus. We, like the nation of Israel, which we all just admitted, are guilty of sin, and because God is just, there must be a penalty of our sin, which is death. Jesus died in our place, took his blood into the heavenly throne room, the real holy of holies, on our behalf, so we could be forgiven and our sin could be paid for. We can only enter in this holy of holies because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we do this by turning from trusting in our own efforts, in our own sacrifices. We turn from that, and we turn and trust in the perfect one and only sacrifice for sin for all time, in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's how we enter into a right relationship with God. It's through Jesus, who was the high priest, and he was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It brings us to the second application I just want to point out this morning. Draw near to God with confidence. All right? Or draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Because Jesus is both our high priest and the sacrifice for sin. We have the privilege, listen, we have the privilege to come to the throne of God, the very holy of holies, the very presence of God. And because of what he did, we won't die when we come to his presence. We'll live like never but before when we come to his presence. Look what it says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things that we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wow, what a privilege. What a privilege. Because Jesus fulfilled what the lamb for the nation was ultimately pointing to. We can have a right relationship with him and we can come to the throne of grace with confidence knowing he will provide all the mercy and grace that we need daily. And we do it with confidence. Some translations say boldness. And some people have misunderstood. Okay, God, here's what I've got for you, buddy. No, 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 no. We do it with confidence all right, we go with confidence, and in some ways, just like the high priest went in there, he went in confidence, not in himself. That's why he was dressed in white, these lens. He went in there because he was holding the blood of the lamb. And we only come in the presence of God because of the blood of the lamb. And we come with confidence in what he has done, not in what we do. And because of who he is, that's why we can come with confidence. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, the clarity of a lamb for the nation, a substitutionary death of a lamb on behalf of guilty sinners. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace and love in giving that. Lord, also thank you that you did not compromise your justice or your holiness. Lord, both of them met ultimately in your son, which was pictured by the lamb for the nation. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. When we close here, we'll have some people down at the front. If you'd like to pray with somebody, ask questions, um, uh, know more about our church here, how you can get involved, they'll be down there to answer your questions. So after hearing, again, of God's amazing 
plan of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, let's stand together and let's respond to that great truth. Right? And God wants us to do it. We're going to respond to that great truth by this, by Jude 24 and 25. Would you read this with me? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.